Kilda, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa New Zealand, episode 41. This is absolute banger, boys and girls. Sing it with me. I don't know. Whoa, why does love do this to me? I don't know. I don't know. Jackie King, she went away deep in the valley. I kissed her that day, but it seems I'm thinking of you. But I'm still thinking about myself. I don't know, why does love do this to me? I don't know, why does love do this to me? I don't know, I don't know. Many an evening's voice lost belting out that song at Otago Uni in the clubs of Dunedin. Anyway, this podcast is... God knows why, supported by our amazing patrons, such as Keith, Jenny, Michelle, Raluca, and Rua Iri. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash history Last time, we talked about a wide variety of Taonga Puro, under the influence of Tangaroa, god of the sea, Hine Pū Tehui, goddess of gourds, and Papa Tuanuku, the earth mother. These included instruments that go instruments that go and instruments that go well, not really, but there was horns and basic gourds and clacky percussion instruments. This time, we will continue our discussion on Māori instruments, talking about the domain of Hene Rokotori, or just Rokotori, depending on who you ask the goddess of flutes. And to start with, there is a bit of an interesting story about her origin. Hine Rokotori is a daughter of Tane Mahuta, and she in fact has a sister by the name of Hine Rokatamea, or just Rokatamea, who is the goddess of entertainment. Now, it might seem like Hine Rokotori got a bit shafted here, given that her sister has a much bigger sphere of influence, but don't fret too much. Some sources call her the goddess of all music, not just that of flutes, so she is a pretty big deal, which hopefully this episode will illustrate. Anyway, the two sisters form a pair called the goddesses of the arts of pleasure, which really sounds a lot sexier than it actually is. But we aren't worried too much about her sister, because Hine Rokotori lived alone, and was said to have loved her flute so much that she lived inside it. This flute was a putorino, an instrument modelled after the cocoon of the New Zealand case moth. In some versions of the story, Hine Rokotori physically lives in a case moth cocoon, and is almost described as being a case moth herself, because she was said to have waited in the cocoon and sung out with a beautiful voice to attract a mate. When she had mated with a male, she would drag him into her home and devour him. Allegedly, all of these behaviours, the female singing from the cocoon, dragging the male in and eating him, are all exhibited by case moths in the wild. However, being the conservation science man that I am, I wanted to just double check, and I wasn't able to find much evidence to corroborate those. In fact, according to the, I will admit, not a huge amount of research that I did, given this is a history podcast and not an animal podcast, the female is the one that dies in her cocoon. And I can't even find a reference to case moth singing, so I'm not really sure on this one. 
Perhaps it's something we need to clear up in a Patreon episode. There is one other neat tidbit to this, which is that in some versions of Maui bringing fire to the world, go listen to episode 20 if you need a refresher, Maui couldn't turn back into a hawk after escaping the wrath of his tūpuna, until he removed the tapu. No one wanted to help him, except the kōkako, who brought him water as aid. In thanks, Maui granted the bird some wishes, which it used to get its distinctive wattles on either side of its beak, but also it asked to be able to sing like Hineiro Katori. So to do that, Maui instructed it to eat case moths, a major part of the bird's diet. Now, we could move on to talk about the Pūtōrino that I mentioned, however, I want to leave that one to last, because it's kind of the absolute titan of Taonga Puro. Instead, we're going to work our way there by starting with Kowowu, so named for the undulating voice of the instrument, but like with most things, the name was regional specific. These are what most European explorers called a flute, as opposed to a fife or a trumpet that they called other Taonga Puro. But Honestly, a lot of explorers tried to shove these instruments into their own frame of reference, and it didn't really work all of the time, so they are a bit fast and loose with the English naming. Kowowu were short, thick flutes that had two holes on top and one hole underneath that would be played with the fingers. The interesting thing about these holes is that they didn't have to be equidistant, with one of the gaps between the holes being a bit bigger. In fact, it was kind of part of the instrument that they weren't, as the way the holes and the length of the kowowo were measured was with the fingers, by using the natural lines and features in them. Quote, In making a kowowo, its length was measured as from the tip of the forefinger of the right hand to the fork at the base of the thumb. The first hole was measured off by placing the forefinger on the instrument nail upward, so as to measure off the length of the first two joints, where the hole is put. Then, the finger is doubled over, so as to bring the first joint thereof nailed downward on the kawowo. The length of that first joint marks the site of the second hole. Then the second joint was brought down in like manner, and its length marked the third hole. Then the thumb was placed sideways on the outer end of the kawowo, and this width of the thumb gave the measurement where to cut the piece off." I realise that doesn't really make any sense when you're listening to it, but the general gist of it is that they're using the joints in their fingers to figure out how long the kawowo should be and where all the holes should go. This wasn't the only way of measuring the distance between holes though. Others, like Kiwi Amoho of Te Arawa, describe the process as making an L on your forehead. Well, not on your forehead, but in front of you, and placing the end of the kowowo against the thumb, and each hole goes where each of the other three joints of your finger are, which would put two of the holes closer together. Just look at your own fingers. Another method that comes from Nati Puro is that the kowowo was held to the sky, and the holes drilled according to Orion's belt, called Totoru by Māori. This method would be more used for ensuring the distance between the holes would be correct, rather than where they would go on the instrument specifically. So, making a kōwowo was more of an art rather than an exact science, especially given that the size of the instrument would be dictated by how big your hands were, 
and thus affect the voice of it. And that we also find some kowowo with plugged up holes and then a new one drilled in, indicating that mistakes were made and then rectified. According to Best, each hole was named for the brothers of Maui. Maui Mua, Maui Roto, and Maui Taha. Though, as per usual, this does seem to be regional. Additionally, some were also seen with five holes instead of the standard three. Those of you paying close attention or just binging may remember back in our carving episodes that Māori Whakaero usually depict people with three fingers rather than five. This is pure speculation, but maybe the kowowo had something to do with that. So, how was it played? The most obvious way would be to put the hole at the end of the instrument to your mouth and blow into it. Right? Well, not exactly. It could certainly be played by putting it directly to the lips or just a short distance away, though it seems that the secret was to hold it at a bit of an angle, which would really bring out the voice of the instrument. There are sources that also say that the kowowo could be played with the nose, though this seems to be a bit more contentious. Partly because this would require a lot of skill, so if there were people that did play it this way, there wasn't many of them, just because of that high skill barrier. But also because Best tells of a man who owned and played a kowowo, but did not know of anyone who played it with the nose. Although in saying that, this is hardly enough evidence to throw out the idea entirely. We have touched on their manufacture a little, but let's look a bit more at what they were made of. As you might expect, these could be made from the big three, wood, bone or stone. Wood was likely what most kowowo were made of. It was readily available, easily obtained, as well as easy to work with. They were also of course carved with designs on them, representing all sorts of different things, no matter what material they were made of. Sometimes they would have male or female figures on them, with some instruments thought to have male or female qualities. Some kowowo were apparently meant to be a bit phallic as well. Ones made from bone were often from various birds, particularly large seabirds like albatross or giant petrels. Our good friends the moa may have also been used when they were around, though their bones are apparently quite porous and may not have lasted as long, and thus not been favoured as much. Other animals that were suggested to have been potential kowowo candidates were the wing bones of the moa's arch nemesis, the harst eagle, the hind legs of the kuri, Pacific dog, the legs of the pack horse crayfish, and possibly teeth from sperm whales. The other kind of bone that they could be made from is, you guessed it, people. Usually the femur or humerus, potentially becoming more popular after the extinction of big megafauna. In fact, bones made from a particularly troublesome enemy, or one that you had a bit of a grudge against, were quite highly regarded, as they had a bit of a sentimental value. They could also be made from tūpuna, and would be played over someone to help them in times of trouble, or to aid in healing from sickness. For this reason, and others that we have mentioned, kōwowu of this type tended to be held fairly exclusively by rangatira, 
and worn around the neck via a couple of small holes through which a cord would be placed. This also resulted in Europeans taking quite the interest in them, since they were displayed so prominently. They were often passed down the generations as well. Kowowo made of stone tend to have a voice that is much deeper than their wood or bone counterparts. Argillite was the favoured stone for these, as well as our good friend Ponamu. As you might expect, Ponamu itself gave some challenges, as well as some rewards. The material was hard to work with, and as such required a large amount of skill to do anything with it. Skills that may have been in short supply. Additionally, all Ponamu came from the South Island, so it was difficult to obtain without trade if you were in the North Island, which is where most of the population was located. Due to this though, Ponamu items were highly sought after and a symbol of status. Unfortunately, no historical examples exist today. All of the knowledge we have on them comes from oral stories. In saying that though, there is some dispute whether Ponamu Kowowo did actually exist, mostly pointing to the fact that Māori may have not had the ability to drill holes through the green stone. However, if you again remember back to the carving episodes, Māori did have drills that could go through the stones they used for various purposes, and even were able to grind through Ponamu to make the eyes in Heitiki. So, I don't think it's outside the realms of possibility that the technology was there to put holes in Ponamu. As a bit of a side note, there are also examples of sandstone kowowo in museums, but it does seem like those may have begun their life as nuru, another instrument we will talk about later. Apart from the big three, there was a few other materials that kowowo could be made from, usually when one was needed quickly but you didn't mind if it didn't last that long. Things like the flower stalks of harakeke, bull kelp, or seaweed were often used. The interesting thing about this is that in places where kelp and seaweed were used, mostly the east coast of both islands, the word is actually used to mean seaweed. Similar materials were observed being used by Joseph Banks, who wrote, quote, They tune their flutes. If two persons play upon flutes which are not in unison, the shorter is lengthened by adding a small roll of leaf tied round the end of it, and move and down till the ears are satisfied. End quote. Speaking of Europeans, the materials of Kowowo changed after the arrival of Europeans, as Māori repurposed new materials to fit within Te Ao Māori. So things like horse, sheep, and cow bones were also used along with glass bottles and bamboo. Now that we have spent way too long just talking about what kowowo were made of, let's talk about in what contexts they were used. For one, they were used to express sorrow, particularly at tangi, funerals. This was especially so during World War I and the Spanish flu, where, quote, night after night, the tangi would indicate another death, end quote. However, a big portion of the info that I found as to why kowowo were played was related to attracting or communicating with lovers. One korero goes that a highborn woman fell in love with a lowborn man who was visiting her village, much to the chagrin of both families. To stop any further courtship, the woman's family grabs the man one night and takes him to a cliff to throw him off, ending the problem. However, 
Before he was thrown off, he requested to play his kowowo one last time. The family accepted, since he had a reputation for, you know, being pretty good. As he played, he spoke a secret message into the instrument, which was carried by the tune to the woman, at the same time as her family was lulled into a sense of security, enjoying his performance. Suddenly, he sprinted and jumped off the cliff into the river below, which was quite the surprise to the family. What they expected to see at the bottom of the cliff was the body of the guy, but instead they saw him getting into a walker that was being paddled by his brothers, speeding him off in what I can only imagine was a Hollywood-style getaway. Over the next few months, the locals kept a close guard of their village and the girl in particular, but after a while, they let their guard down. Before they knew it, poof, she was gone. Supposedly, all they could hear as the waka disappeared into the mist were the words, quote, Kia Pio Pio, end quote, take me to Pio Pio, which is a place just south of Tekuiti. In a slightly different vein, Kowowo were also said to be skillfully played by Patupayarehe, fairies. Apparently, the sound travelled so well that it could be heard when the player couldn't be seen, hence why you could hear the fairies, but not see them. This resulted in one quite funny story from a modern source, where his mates were out on the river in a waka and heard a kowowo, but they couldn't see anyone playing it, so they naturally assumed it was fairies and decided to book it out of there in case something bad happened. When the group came back and were later telling this story to their mate, who is our source, he was a good friend and listened to their tale, but decided not to tell them that he was on the bank of that river in the long grass, composing a new song. We also know that they were often played in groups, but overall, we don't know a huge amount of how or in what contexts the kowowo was played, so players are finding out new things about them all the time. A slight variation on the kowowo is the porutu, sometimes dubbed the extra long kowowo as it is basically the same thing, just thinner and longer. The finger holes are even spaced roughly in the same way as the kowowo, just at the further end of the instrument, and was sometimes made from a couple of pieces of wood or bone lashed together, rather than a single piece. As you might have guessed, because it's a bit different, it was the South Islanders that tended to favour this instrument. Now that we have spent the majority of the episode on a single instrument, let's move on to another slightly different flute, the rehu. Rehu are instruments that kind of resemble the typical western flute, long thin cylinders with three finger holes on the top and a fourth one also on the top, rather than at the end of the instrument to blow into. This has led historians to believe that the rehu may be a transitional instrument, one that was developed after the arrival of Europeans when Māori were experimenting by combining the technology that they were familiar with with that of the new stuff that was now available to them. In fact, the word rehu itself is thought to potentially be a transliteration of the English word flute. By that I mean an English word that has been kind of morphed into a Treo Māori word, like the original English name for Wellington being Port Nicholson, which has a well-known transliteration, Pōniki, that is commonly used today. As a side note, you should know that this isn't the original Māori name for the area. 
that's Te Whanganui Atara. Rehu were also made out of metal, glass and cow horn, as well as wood. It doesn't seem like they were made out of the other two materials that make up the big three. Kind of in the same breath as Rehu, Best talks about the fio, another instrument, but he doesn't really give a description for it. It's likely that it was very similar to the Rehu, if not the same thing, given Europeans were a bit fast and loose with their naming and descriptions. So I'm going to chuck it in here with the assumption that it is more or less the same thing as a Rehu. This would kind of make sense, given that fio is the Maori word for whistle. Those of you who are into New Zealand conservation like I am will know that this is also the Māori name for the endemic blue duck, so named for the whistling call it makes. Best mostly describes what these instruments were used for, namely in courtship, as a person adept at playing them would be considered a good match. Though the story for this one is slightly more scandalous than that of the kōwōwō, it was said that during a dark evening, a man was playing a fio or rehu, and was very good. He was doing so to woo a woman, who did eventually choose him based on this. However, it wasn't actually him playing, it was his mate, who was hiding nearby. The woman didn't notice this, and the wingman was rewarded for his efforts. The one slight slip-up was that after marriage, the husband was occasionally asked to play again to show off his skills. Though, he would decline every time. No idea how he managed to get away with that, but according to Best, this situation wasn't super uncommon. That is where we will leave it this time. I had expected this to be the last episode in our series on Taonga Puro, However, I just so happened to have loads of information that I couldn't bear to not put in. Whoops. So, next time. We will continue talking about the realm of Hine Katori with the Nuru, Pukaya, and finally, the absolute big boss of them all, the Putorino. If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can reach me through email at historyaotearoa at gmail.com or Twitter at historyaotearoa or Facebook at historyaotearoa New Zealand podcast. Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. This podcast is a one-man band. If you enjoy listening to me talk history, you can support us through Patreon, buy merch from historyaotearoa.com or give us a review. It means a lot and helps spread the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always, Hari tu atu, hoki tu mai. See you next time. <laughs>